This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow where we discuss the world of real estate in the pandemic. I'm Miriam Hall, BizNow's New York reporter. Today, our guest is Scott Reckler, the CEO of RXR Realty, a company which owns office buildings like 75 Rock, 32 Old Slip and 230 Park Ave. Scott is the chair of the Regional Plan Association, a former board member of the MTA and was previously the vice chair of the Port Authority. Like many in real estate in the city, he's encouraging companies to bring their workers back to the office to support things here. And workers at his company have already been back since June. We talk about that in a moment, but first I asked him what his view is on how something like the subway system could be best helped with federal funding that many are hoping will come from the Biden administration. It's a good question. And, and there's a good example, right, about having to think about in a post-pandemic world, what's the revenue model for something like transit and subway system? Because if we're going to be in, a, in an environment where people are commuting less to the city, uh, which I think is going to be the case, then there's going to be less natural ridership. And even if they're doing a great job, if that's down, let's say 20%, what's their revenue model look like, right? So I think part of this is they need to, everyone needs to take a step back and realize that, you know, what was in the past is history. We have a a new future with a new set of facts and circumstances that we need to be thinking about our fiscal model against. And so I think that the federal money will help bridge us to be able to make that assessment. But I do think it's going to then require the MTA board having to take a step back and say, okay, what do we need to do relative to service? What's the right level of service to support this? Do we want to continue to have to be a 24-7 subway system or should we you know, be closing down at nights, which not only reduces costs, but also provides an opportunity to do capital projects um, that have become more costly when you have to do them when you have a 24-7 system, right? So there are things that they can do to accommodate that. But there's going to need to be changes. And I think, you know, the same as you look at the Port Authority relative to the path and travel, right? As we think through what's going to happen in terms of of the level of travel at the airports is going to have to adjust as well. And so how do you rethink through your forecast, uh, at least for a period of time, right? I mean, in, in travel, maybe that comes back sooner than the amount of subway ridership. But that's something that we need to think about. Yeah, it's interesting, the the 24-hour thing. I've always found that as being used as an excuse to kind of explain away the subway's failings. People say, oh, the subway's terrible. They're, oh, but it's the only one in the world that runs 24-7. Well, maybe that's not going to be the case anymore. That's right. And I mean, you know, and I've, in the role of the RPA, shared the RPA, you know, we've had a lot of conversation about whether that's necessary or not, right? And I think the, the part of the challenge is, is there are a lot of essential workers or people that work in, um, in restaurants or hospitality or healthcare that need public transportation. So questions, can you start replacing that with some buses? Are there other alternatives that are out there? And what's the what's the analysis in terms of the, the cost benefit along the way on that front? And plus, there have been some research out recently. I mean, the subways were really much very maligned as like in the early days of the pandemic. But there has been research recently that has shown that if there's, you know, good um, ventilation and people wear masks, these are safe ways to travel. Public transport is safe. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, again, that that is in the, you know, in this period pre getting um, the vaccine and what I call this new abnormal period, that is a psychological problem. And that's been on a lot of fronts, right, where there was immediately headlines that ultimately 
when you look past the headlines and at the the facts and data around it, hasn't proved itself out. And so, you know, I know when I speak to a lot of our tenants and about coming back to the workplace, you know, mass transit always comes up high on the list of concerns, even to the point where they're telling their employees that they'll pay them stipends to drive their cars in, which obviously is not a realistic solution because our streets don't have the capacity to handle that. So hopefully more and more people will start taking uh, the subway and the commuter rail, like I know a lot of uh, our team members are. And, you know, from there, people will build confidence that that's not, not an issue. Are you back on the subway? I am back on the subway. Are you on every day? Not every day, but I, it depends on what my schedule is, but I, a couple of days a week because it's a couple of blocks from my house. And it's amazing in the sense that this, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really clean. It's mm-hmm. uh, always on time. You know, it's from, in all my experiences, everyone's wearing a mask. So I haven't been in a, in a car or walked through where people aren't wearing masks. Uh, so, you know, it's a real efficient way to travel. Now, again, if it was really congested, like in the typical days of the subway, might people feel differently? Maybe, but we're not, we're so far away from that point that I don't think we need to, uh, to worry about that. I just want to stay on politics for just a moment. You know, New York State Democrats kind of underperformed in New York. They they did hold on to their majority, I think, in both the House and the and the Senate, but some seats were flipped and it's generally considered to be disappointing. Why do you think that was? I think that again, this this ties to that there has been a movement, particularly in New York, right, just on the extreme left of the the the, the Social Democratic Party, and and there has been um, a view that that you know after the uh, AOC phenomenon in, in Long Island City, that that's where things were moving. And when you look at the session last year, there were a couple of pieces of legislation that were passed that, at a state level, really concerned people. Whether it was the uh, legislation around bonds um, and, and uh, bail, rather bail reform. Um, some of the other legislation like that that uh, was out there uh, that you know people believe led to increases in crime or other issues. I don't think that's consistent with the overall state. And um, and I think again this was healthy. I think this was a healthy, in my opinion, recoiling back to we're not looking for extreme. We're looking for good leadership, government to do a good job and do its job, helping us get through challenges, provide a safety net, realizing that we have issues with things like you know, having to think about dealing with the police and, and we're going to ultimately have to go through police reform and uh, and things of that nature, but it's not defunding the police, right? We can't have these logos that people are tying to ideology versus dealing with complex problems in ways that address the complexity of them, you know, because they're not simple problems. And I think that this was a message back. And so even in New York, where, you know, there was a risk that the governor would lose his ability to sustain a veto and they'd get a supermajority um, in the Democratic side of the Senate, that now has been pushed back. And even for the people that have won in places like Long Island or upstate, the Democrats, they got the message that, you know, you're sort of on notice that that we really are, we, we are not looking for an extreme ideological shift to the left. We're looking for the center. And um, and, I, and again, and I think that's the same for the, the country, right? I think there's a lot of anxiety out there right now about public health, about the economy, and, and about the bigger structural issues like income inequality and the haves and have nots, which, you know, as, as we've gone through this process, COVID has been an accelerant of that. And the accelerant of, of that has been extraordinary where, you know, when people say what kind of recovery we're going to have, we're living through what I call a K-shaped recovery, or it's commonly called a K-shaped recovery, where there's part of the economy that 
is actually you know doing well, doing really well, as the stock market highlights or some of these you know tech companies highlight. But there's the other part of the economy that is is actually has the inverse and is going negative down. And when you look at that, unfortunately, it's the it's the hard uh, working men and women uh, that you know, work in the restaurants, hospitality, retail, you know, that don't have the safety net to even bounce back, right? So the the, the ones that are doing the V-shaped side of this equation, they have the luxury to stay at home. They have the luxury and capacity to have staying power. So this is, we're going to come out of this with an income inequality and a situation that was even much worse and pronounced than it was uh, going into it. So that's another area that we're going to have to deal with and has to be dealt with, you know, in a, in a thoughtful, responsible, but, but, but aggressive way. It's not going to happen without, you know, really being aggressive about uh, how to approach it. With that in mind, a lot of people I speak to bring brings up the, the mayor's race next year. You're very politically active, obviously, and you have been public in calling upon the current mayor, Mayor uh, Bill de Blasio, to address the concerns that the city's facing right now. What role do you expect that you'll play leading up to the race in 2021? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to play any specific role other than, um, you know, being civically act- active and advocating um, for what I think we need to see in a new mayor. You know, I, as you know, to me, I think we're going to be coming into this period at a point, as I said, where there's so much uncertainty, so much anxiety, so many fiscal challenges, concerns about quality of life and public safety, that we really need a mayor uh, who can, can lead quickly, that knows that can focus on those issues. And I probably would say public safety, uh, fiscal responsibility, you know, bringing people together and, and with a unified vision of how we're going to uh, bring our city back together. You know, I, we, one of the things that I, that's a, as I think back on this past mayor's term, we were talking about the tale of two cities. And, you know, the problem is that in, which I think there's, there is truth to that, as I just noted, right, that there is the haves and have nots and there's, you know, different levels, but you don't solve a tale of two cities by making it more divisive and say, okay, I'm, I only care about solving these people's problems. You bring people together, you bring the business community, the civic community together to be part of that solution. And so I think when whoever's that next mayor needs to enlist the city as a whole, you know, all the major stakeholders of the city to come together to help uh, address the, the, the challenges that are there. Okay, so you won't be running and you're not backing anyone publicly just yet? Right, no and no. Whichever, whatever answer means I'm not running and I'm not backing anyone publicly yet. Why are there always rumors that you're going to run for mayor, do you think? Have you ever said that? No, I, I think because I am very, um, you know, active in my advocating and civic responsibility. And, you know, and I, I, I really do believe that um, and, and being close to politics and in public service, there is sometimes you can achieve more by having a foot in and a foot out than having two feet in. Um, you know, if you watch an elected official, uh, you know, they're always watching the polls, they're always watching the electorate. And the reality is you're almost boxing a ghost because not, and every constituent has different concerns, different views. And so the, the leaders that really do well are the ones that really know what they believe in and can effectively communicate it and have the ability to stay uh, consistent with that belief and not be influenced by the short-term politics or the political whims uh, or public uh, uh, whims of the public views. And as a, as a private citizen, you, you know, I'm not burdened by that, right? So I can speak and take action uh, where I see appropriate and advocate uh, appropriate without having to worry about what the polls say. Talking about the immediate issues of the city for the moment, there are concerns that we're on the cusp of a second wave with rising cases. 
uh, your workers at RxR are back, you've got them back you, and you've encouraged other companies to do the same, come back to the office, come back to the city. Do you think you'd change tact if, uh, if the cases keep rising? I've always taken the approach that bringing people back is not something you, you do in a, uh, in a manner that isn't at the utmost of being focused on being responsible and being safe. And that if the circumstances change around you, you got to take a step back and reevaluate where you're at, right? So I'm, I'm, I would never just plow forward if it changes meaningfully. What I would say is that I think that, you know, if you look at Manhattan, we still have a relatively low infectious rate. You know, we measure the uh, infectious rates of the zip codes where all of our team members are working. So we're sort of tracking that and, and can adjust even by zip code uh, if you see surges. I, I do think the governor's approach of taking more of that micro response in terms of and then the color coding is is the appropriate approach versus we're going to close everything down approach and so i think we would take a similar type of approach is understand what the situation is don't just look at one number and say okay we got to shut everything down but focus on how what the implications are and is the virus spreading and are we putting any of our team members in harm's way by bringing them into uh, the workplace. How has your push to, um, I guess, bring people back to the city been received? You released a video after Labor Day kind of encouraging people to support New York. You've spoken a lot about how the city needs to come together and step up and, and, and support people. Um, people need to shop at small businesses, ride the subway. What was the response like? It's interesting. The response was very, very positive in terms of the feedback, I would say less positive in terms of the actions, right? I mean, when I would speak to leaders of other companies, we're with you, we're with you, we're just measuring as to where things play out, right? So we want to get through the election. You saw last week, there was a big drop off of activity of people in the city are coming back to the city because of concerns what might happen after the election. Uh, now there's this, this, you know, the conversation, are we seeing a surge and how that plays itself itself through? And so I think people are trying to get some visibility on what happens uh, in the in the fall. Um, but people are starting to plan. And, um, you know, we're starting to see, even this morning, I, I got a note from someone from Evercore, the in investment bank who just came back to their offices. And I've spoken to some of the other large investment banks banks are trying to think about how to plan to bring people uh, back, uh, whether it's, you know, right at the beginning of the year, or as we get through the first couple of months uh, of the year. And I think, you know, this goes back to the leadership part, right? I mean, one of the, the, the challenges still is there's there's not the infrastructure in place fully that gives people the confidence. There, and, in, and infrastructure would also be, I would say, liability insurance, because, you know, how do companies do this, even if they're following all the government guidelines, if something happens, they are, they're fearful that they're going to have some liability challenges uh, in that in that mix. You know, the testing and tracing is starting to make some progress. You know, we just uh, a few weeks ago uh, now we had New York State came out with its COVID tracing app, which if anyone hasn't downloaded, they should download it. It's great. Um, uh, I've seen people, I use it. I've seen people actually have been notified when they've been around someone uh, that they didn't even know for, you know, six feet for 15 minutes. So it, it works. So we have that infrastructure. We don't have the testing infrastructure. We're in the process of rolling out and being in a position to roll out for our tenants, a testing capacity. We're doing it at RxR now where it's data driven. So you're in a two week class, a one week class or three day class, depending on uh, rotation and testing, depending on 
the facts about where you live, what's going on in your building, wastewater testing, uh, air quality testing, testing of surfaces to see if you pick up any viral matter, and 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 your personal behavior like social distancing uh, activities out of the office, and that's worked pretty well in terms of being able to to do that plus pool testing. So we test five samples with one test. So that's been able to bring the cost down to a manageable level. And, and so between those two elements and then doing it in our office for convenience, you know, it's a, it's a program that's about $35 per employee per month with a PCR test that, that you get results to your app and you're, you're on your way. So it's interesting that since we've started that, I've seen a change in our team in terms of, you know, comfort level. Uh, not only for them, but even their family members. It's almost like uh, this is a holiday gift. They get the test results. They're excited to get their test results. They feel good that they're tested and they've, you know, there's some transparency. You know, if there's four out of every 10 people that have COVID are asymptomatic. So you don't know, right? And the goal is how do we try to make sure people, um, you know, have visibility of uh, where their virus might be when the virus is invisible. Our hope is that gets rolled out more too, by the way. Yeah, so you put a lot of time and money into um, getting that sort of program up and running. But you said it's positive on the, you know, on the people are saying we're with you, but in the practical sense, it sounds like in theory, people are like, yes, we've got to get back. Yes, we've got to support the city. But on a practical sense, the people aren't back. It, it, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I mean, we're, listen, we're still at about you know, 10 to 12% occupancy mm. in our buildings right now, right? Which is disappointing um, to where we have to be. And and listen, I, you know, my, my concern, I have this conversation with people, and I, I, it's that to me, I think we're not being responsible um, by not coming back, that people need to realize that there's a, 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 a responsibility to the city. And even though you may have the luxury that you can run your business and maybe not as effectively, but well enough from working at home, a lot can't. And the ones that can't are the ones that are going to go out of business or they're going to be the ones that are unemployed and they make up a big part of our 14% plus unemployment rate that we have in the city. And the longer this goes on, the deeper that hole becomes, the harder it is for those people to reopen new businesses or, or salvage their careers or, or, or even go, have an ability to, to stay in the city. And so, um, you know, as I talk to other executives and I say, you know, you, I, I hear you speak about your SGE and your social responsibility and dealing with the any you know inequality, and that's all good and it's good that you're putting money to it. But you can do something about it by actually bringing people back to the workplace safely and responsibly to help these businesses survive and help these people maintain their their uh, employment. But I think the bottom line is is that a lot of people are really scared. They're still scared to go back to the office. They're still scared to be in the city. And I mean, executives executives can have all the conversations they want about supporting the city, but at the at the end of the day, if someone's frightened to come back to the office, they're probably not going to make them. Do you know what's amazing to me is I've spoken to some hotel uh, owners here in the city, and they're on the weekdays they're maybe twenty thirty percent occupied. On the weekends they're ninety percent occupied. And now they give low rates, but still they're not, people are not scared to come to the city to be there. If you look at Long Island Railroad and Metro North, the ridership is almost double on weekends as it is on weekdays right now. So I, I, I think that people have gotten complacent. I think that companies haven't mandated that we, that we want you back, that we need you back, right? And, 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 and again, if, if, there, if it was just like the subways, your point about the subway, there's a lot of us that are back and we're managing it. It costs money. We had to change the way that we operate. We had to change protocols and we have to, you know, do things differently, but it's working. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's just a complacency. 
So it's not that people are scared. It's just that people are like, you know what? I can do this fine for my laptop in my second home or whatever. Yeah. And I think that, I think, and I think the companies aren't mandating otherwise. And I think, you know, I think the technology companies for them uh, to some degree, this is, they, they have an ability that longer that people work from home, there's more adoption of a lot of their tools. So while they may be losing productivity, they're gaining in market share. So they maybe have no sense of urgency to come back in many cases, right? Until, you know, it gets to a point where, where their, their employees say we want to come back and need to come back. You mentioned um, 10 to 15% occupancy still in your buildings. What about in the suburbs? It must be higher. It's higher. It's about, it's about and I would say, you know, 30 to 50% of the suburbs. Are you one of those people who thinks that this is, you know, the boom of the suburbs and it's going to be, everyone's going to have an office in the suburbs? I, 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 I'm not one of those in that regard, but I do think that we're going to be moving more to a distributable workforce, which is something that I've always thought was valuable. You know, New York, uh, if you go back and look at history, there was a period of time where, you know, from the, from the 70s to the uh, late 90s, uh, or mid nineties where the suburbs were getting all the jobs and there was flight from the urban center and that, that inverted and then the city was getting all the jobs and the suburbs were, were stagnant. I think in this case, people are gonna look at us through a regional lens and we'll have a, a, you know, some of the jobs located in satellite offices in the suburbs, um, some in the city. And I think that creates greater capacity for long-term growth. So there may be a little bit of pain going through that transition but you know that's something that at the RPA we've been advocating for for quite some time because you know pre-pandemic one of our biggest challenges was capacity and affordability, affordability of housing, capacity of our transit system, congestion on our streets, uh, high quality office space. So if you can look through that regional lens of the New York metro area, um, I think we'll be you know much more competitive and a, and a higher quality of life for the people that live and work in this area. How do you think a second lockdown? should or could be managed if it does come to that i'm, I'm hopeful that it doesn't what come happened? to that right, <laughs> We're and, all hopeful. And, right. And, and i'm hope and i get and i think the governor has already you know indicated that his attempt is to really focus on on micro regional lockdowns as necessary where where they occur you know to the extent that there is a second lockdown and we're watching that in location places like in in the uk right now right and other places where that have gone through it you know, my guess is it will be less scary for people and less, I think people will feel less impact than we did the first time around because of two, one, we'll have better visibility of what's happening in the world. We've already seen while well, hospitalization rates um, are now rising around the country, if you look at mortality rates, they're much, much lower. We got better therapeutics, people are in or out of the hospital more quickly. So I think that also gives, relieves a little anxiety and I think also people would say, okay, we're in here for a couple of months as we get through the winter or a month before we get through the winter, but there's spring on the other side of this and spring comes with better weather, comes with the vaccine, and then we'll you know, be working at it again. I, but I, I, if I, had, I would be very surprised in the New York area if we actually have to go into a full-blown lockdown again. I heard you say on Squawkbox a few months ago that you wouldn't mind paying more taxes if it helps the city become more equitable, safer. I mean, do you think that that's the answer? Like large, well-capitalized companies such as RxR that have benefited from New York uh, pay more tax? I, I, I don't know if you know that's the sole answer, right? I think it's a piece of the answer. I think we all need to contribute, you know, for where the city has been good to uh, organizations like ours and people like me, I think we all need them to be able to contribute to help the city continue to be strong and deal with the, some of the 
challenges that we have in equity and uh, and and other areas uh, that with the city. I think part of the problem um, is is really twofold, right? One is that there's not a lot of trust that government and government bureaucracies spend money well, and so people I think we are more apt to be willing to contribute if they knew that dollar they were spending had a uh, was going to be spent wisely and had a direct impact on the health, vitality, and equality of the city. Um, so I think that's, and I would also balance that with taking away Scott Reckler just broadly, right? Which is that if you look at New York, 40% uh, of our taxes come from our top 1% of earners. And so you need to be thoughtful that with every dollar of tax that we may be raised by raising taxes on the wealthy, if we lose wealthy that go to Florida or Texas or wherever else they go where there's, you know, much lower tax rates, um, then you, you know, you're going to end up getting to a, a tipping point where we're not going to have a, we're not going to have a fiscally balanceable budget without everyone paying more taxes, right? Which then makes us less competitive uh, and, and, and less attractive for people who want to live here. So you can't look at everything in isolation um, and in, in, in that front. So it's, it's, it's not as simple as, as you should, you suggest your, by your question, but the answer is, I do believe in contributing and um, you know pay taxes and and give a lot to charitable organizations that help support um, the uh, the people in need in the city right now. I just feel like every time there's a suggestion from lawmakers, the real estate industry gets really angry about it. Like for example, the Pierre de Terre tax. People are very unimpressed by that. But from leadership's point of view, there's got to they've got to do something to try and generate revenue. Yeah, and I agree. I think again, I think that there's. And I've had that conversation with my colleagues on, you know, things like that uh, very tax, right? Which is at some point or another, we're going to have to find ways to create tax and there's going to be create revenue and you're going to have to, you know, choose which is the, you know, which is the worst vice, um, but that has the least amount of damage to um, the businesses or the, the, the ability for New York to be competitive. There's going to have to be things that are done ultimately. And that's the same thing with fares and everything else that's out there is that, this doesn't go away for free, but I do think the public deserves to know um, that the money that's coming in is managed effectively. I mean, I'll go back to my point I, I said earlier. We have a, a budget that's $20 billion more since Mike Bloomberg left office. And I, 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 for one, do not see $20 billion more of quality of life and services to the city. So it, 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 it argues that we have to um, you know, not only, it's not only about money, it's about the management of that money. Uh, when I was at the MTA, um, you know, there, when I, I ran a subcommittee on construction costs and trying to understand how we were going to bring down costs. And when you dig through it, people who would bid on MTA projects would put a 25% premium on what their, their estimated budget, what they called the, the MTA factor, because the bureaucracy and the contracts that they had to go through were so uh, one-sided towards the MTA that they were fearful that they were going to end up losing money. So just even before you even started at trying to create a competitive process to get the lowest cost, the winning bidder would put a 25% you know, uh, premium on it. So that's not a good way to, uh, to, to be able to run um, you know, a government and give people comfort on having more money go into government that way. Scott, thank you so much for being on the program. Really appreciate it. It's always fun. Thank you.